Stephen Mallory went to the Tredegar Ironworks in Virginia to inspect these great sheets of iron that would go upon his new ironclad to bust the Union blockade and break the Confederacy out of a Union grasp on the seas. This wonder weapon that could destroy what little Union Navy ships sought around Gosport could destroy the Union and bring the Confederacy to a glorious age. But there's lots of problems of the construction of the Merrimack, soon to be called the CSS Virginia. News from southern newspapers leaked up quickly to Washington, D.C., where the federal government heard about this great weapon that was being built by the CSA, and Gideon Wells, Abraham Lincoln, and other great politicians of the federal government panicked, thinking, how are we going to counter this? And then a commission was created. Hello, and welcome back to part three of the Battle of the Hampton Roads. We're the Cleocast. I'm R.C. I'm Matt. And we're going to continue talking right where we left off about the Merrimack, the Monitor, the politics constructing both, and the problems of constructing both. So let's just jump right in. So to start off this episode, we're going to go with a few clarifications from last time of timeline and of name conventions, just to keep you in the loop. So as you recall, we had the whole Fort Sumter thing. So on March 4th, Lincoln takes office, then Fort Sumter is bombed, 39 hours it falls, and then on April 17th, so one month later, that's when Virginia finally secedes, the Gobsport Naval Yard is evacuated. So, for clarification, Gobsport would eventually become uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and the Norfolk, Virginia Naval Yard in 1862. But during this time and in the 1860, 1861 timeline, it is Gobsport Naval Yard. So, whenever we talk about Gobsport, just imagine Norfolk, Virginia. Continuing on, on April 19th, that's when John Isherwood is evacuated from the Norfolk Naval Yard. His task done, the engines are fixed, but the ship is not evacuated. This Merrimack is scuttled soon after, burned to the ground, but that ground is water, so the bottom half survives, the engine intact. July 11th, that's when Stephen Mallory decides that the only way to break the Union naval blockade is through alternative means. The Confederacy has no naval traditions. They have no navy to speak of. The only possible way they can break the iron grip the Union has over the Confederate shoreline is with an ironclad. To achieve this in, the Confederate Congress appropriated some of $172,000 to finance the construction of this new ironclad vessel. In 2022 dollars, that'd be about $5 million, but I'm not sure how accurate the little conversion calculator tool I used is converting from Confederate dollars in 1860 to U.S. dollars in 2022, so take that with a massive grain of salt. But it does give a rough estimate of how much they figured it would cost. So they took the whole of the Merrimack, they examined it, they came up with a loose design idea of just kind of building a metal sheath to deposit on top of the wooden existing engine and hull. The only ironworks in the entire Confederacy that can produce the iron plates at the capacity needed was the Treadgar Ironworks in Virginia. 
It was the third largest ironworks of its kind in the entire United States, and so thusly it was the only biggest one in the Confederacy. The only issue they had was it was currently occupied producing cannons and bullets and firearms and other metal implements needed to actually pursue the war effort, you know, to keep the soldiers armed and the cannons built and all that. So they requisitioned it to build these plates, which took up a large amount of the actual production capacity. This project was demanding so much iron that they were actually stripping out railroad lines from northern Virginia that weren't really used much anymore because they went to Baltimore and Ohio. And, you know, obviously with those being controlled by the Union, they're not really shipping too much there anymore. And they melted those down and turned them into iron plates for the new ironclad. Well, at this time, you know, with hindsight, we know that the ironclad is actually going to be pretty successful. In 1860, when they're constructing it and taking all of this iron from railroads and all the iron that could be used to be made cannons, they're taking a lot of valuable material that could be going to, you know, Robert Lee and Stonewall Jackson to help with, you know, Bull Run, and instead pouring it into what is at this point a vanity project of Mallory's. You know, a ship of this type hasn't been constructed, and it certainly hasn't been constructed by an agrarian state like the Confederacy is. And a lot of his detractors, rightfully so, were pointing out that he was sapping resources and valuable production line time from the Treadgar Ironworks into something that may very well just sink as soon as it set out upon the water. And they didn't really have a like design. You know, this wasn't being built from the ground up as an ironclad. They were just kind of taking an existing ship that had been burned down and putting iron plating over it to, to turn it into an ironclad. I mean, there's no guarantee this would work. And can you imagine what Mallory would, you know, be court-martialed or executed for any of this stuff, just wasting resources and production time? So this was pretty much do or die for Mallory. This was his career on the line, you know. But he believed in it, and he kept pursuing it. Even though this plan of Stephen Mallory's was supposed to be a state secret, with Stephen Mallory and the Confederate capital being in Richmond, the Tredegar Ironworks being in Richmond, and Norfolk only a short train ride away, Southern newspapers, and specifically pro-Confederacy newspapers, all both North and South, because Baltimore was also a Confederate hotbed, even though it stayed in the Union, were publishing all these uh, reports about the plan for this ironclad. So it wasn't hard for the federal government and uh, the Union Navy under Gideon Wells to realize that the Confederacy was building something that really only... Uh, the British have attempted with the HMS Warrior, but the HMS Warrior was a completely different style of ship. This is a brand new, interesting, and unorthodox design that's coming out of the South, and uh, they needed something that could fight this ship and counteract this ship because Gideon Wells was scrambling trying to build a navy that can maintain a big blockade and if something that can destroy or not take the shells from a regular Union ship and just have them bounce right off, that's a disaster. So, Gideon Wells got some big Navy names 
and created the Ironclad Commission. But also, Abraham Lincoln took a very keen interest in this ironclad deal. Although he is a man from Illinois, a Midwestern state, he was a uh, riverboat captain or a riverboat operator for a few years in Illinois and had a keen interest in ships. Even though he wasn't exactly an expert or came from a naval tradition, Abraham Lincoln wanted to really be involved with the naval design of this ship and was interested in what ideas would come from the Ironclad Commission. So here comes a man named Cornelius Bucknell. Bucknell was a capitalist and a man who ran a good-sized railroad. He came up with a plan to build these smaller ironclads that were wind-powered and were going to be cheap. They were basically just going to be regular wooden ships with just a little iron lining around them. But this idea wasn't really panning out for him with the Ironclad Commission, but he did have good connections, especially in the government due to his money and influence. So he was directed to a man who was living in New York at the time. A man we heard uh, just on the first episode, John Erickson. John Erickson had shelved the plan for a Ironclad uh, years before, but Bushnell took the plan that he had for this small conventional little iron ship that was lined with iron but just a regular ship and brought it to the man who had been a part of the Princeton and was like how do you think this works do you think this is a good ship idea John Erickson was like yeah good plan but I have one thing better for you ran up to his attic and came down with this little wooden model and was like what is this it was a small little plank with just curved ends for a keel and bow and a little rotating turret on the top. It didn't really look like a ship at all from the conventional days of sail with towering masts and gigantic sails with artillery platforms along all of the sides of the ship. This was an odd ship, but... Bucknell saw a plan and an idea from a man who has a very deep engineering credential. So what he did is he took this plan of the ship that would be called the Monitor to the Ironclad Commission and brought it to the old-timey Navy men uh, assigned to this plan by Gideon Wells and showed him this Ironclad design. And it was rejected. They weren't a fan of it, and they weren't a fan that it was designed by the man who was a part of the Princeton. As you know, he was John Erickson was framed for a the Peacemaker incident on the USS Princeton, and these Navy men deeply remembered that. But Bushnell had a plan. He Abraham Lincoln saw the design for what would become the Monitor and thought it was genius. So with the idea that the president was on board and that the Ironclad Commission really just needed an extra push because they do need an Ironclad, and they can't really reject a lot of these ideas, he went back to New York City and told John Erickson, your plan has been approved. John Erickson, not excited, more of like, yes, of course my plan was approved, went to New York City to go accept the contract. Upon arriving in Washington, D.C., John Erickson met with the Ironclad Commission, and the Ironclad Commission simply laid out, no, we rejected your plan. John Erickson, in 
his simple and aggressive manner, <laughs> chewed them out, explaining exactly why they were wrong. And eventually, the Ironclad Commission was swayed to allow construction of the USS Monitor to go forward. But that's just a plan approved. You now have to figure out how are you going to build a boat that will be only a few feet above the waterline and a radical new design in existing shipyards that are being pushed to capacity to build a navy to blockade the south. How are we going to do it? So we've been talking the past couple episodes about, you know, how important this blockade was to the Union and how few ships they had. And as Matt was just talking about how, you know, the shipyards are being pushed to capacity just to produce enough just guns on the water to stop southern shipping. And we've been talking about how desperate the South was to get, you know, break the blockade. But how does it match up that, you know, the North is stretched to exertion, blockading 2,000 miles of shoreline, but also the South is already being affected by it? Well, it's kind of a funny answer, actually. The South, upon the start of the war, actually stopped shipping out cotton and most of their exports to Europe. The blockade wasn't really effective. They couldn't do anything, but the South chose to stop shipping out. Now, why would they do this? Well, they were thinking that cotton is so important to the economies. You know, they use it for everything. Production of ammunition, production of clothes. It's used for everything in Europe. They figured, well, if we shut off shipments, it'll put pressure on Europe, on Britain, and they'll come to our aid. The issue was that Britain had enough of a stockpile of cotton that it didn't really affect them. And in fact, Britain was exporting cotton to the Union during this period of time. They were shipping their cotton away. After a few months, the Southerners kind of realized this. But by that point, they had kind of given the Union enough time to get their shit together and, you know, put the blockade in place. Uh... So they basically stranglehold it themselves. They they took what would have been an impossibility to do and through their own arrogance managed to make it a possibility. Because by the point that they started trying to ship out again, you know, the Union had boats outside of Norfolk, boats outside of New Orleans, you know, ships outside of most major port cities on the South. And they were able to more effectively... It was never like an ironclad blockade, but they got most of it by this point. And that's why this has become such an issue, and that's why the South is under so much pressure. And that's why they're willing to divert their only major ironworks into building a ship to destroy this blockade. And in doing so, they needed to test, because, see, this was a bit of a uh, experiment for the South. I mean, they... You know, we're taking an existing bottom and slapping on, and they weren't even sure if the iron plates would work. So they came up with a design of, it was three inch thick plates. So it was three individual plates that were an inch thick each sandwiched together. And they created a test bed that was 12 feet square. And right off the coast of uh, Norfolk, there's an island that they went to. It's uninhabited mostly. And they brought about 16 uh, carpenters. They built a test stand. They brought an 8-inch cannon. And they had a great old time just firing cannonballs at this uh, 
armor plate. And you know what they figured out? They figured out that it did not work at all. It punched clean through. You could see the exposed wood. This design would not work at all. So they went back to the drawing board. They thought, okay, well, the three-inch plate doesn't work. The three-inch thick plate, it's really hard to say this in a thing, but I'm going to try and make it clear. So they decided to do two-inch plate, so four inches total, sandwiched together. So they created a new test article. They brought it back to the island. They did the exact same testing procedure they did before, and it dented, it splintered, but you couldn't see the wood. The cannonballs damaged the plates, but they didn't break them. This design would work. It was slightly thicker. The plates themselves were thicker. It was harder to manufacture, but it worked as armor, and that's the most important part. They did run into an issue with this, though. There wasn't actually a press at the Trafalgar Ironworks that could cut a hole through this. They could produce the plates, but they couldn't actually manufacture holes to like attach them together. They had to get a really like annoying drill process that took a long time. You know, they had a bunch of people scraping at it. So it worked well as armor, but it was, you know, impossible to manufacture for them. Except for upon further searching of the Norfolk Naval Yard, they discovered a drill press that had been recently installed and hadn't really been used yet that the Union had put in a few months before it was taken. And this drill press was able to punch through two-inch thick plates. In fact, it was such a great drill press that it remained in service until World War II. It continued producing Liberty ships and other such things. So they had their drill press, they had their design, and they set out to work on it. So with the plan approved for the monitor, John Erickson took to building his design that has been shelled for many years. The Union went up the Hudson River and talked to ironworks in Albany and Troy, New York. They are far away from the sea, but they played a crucial part in American naval history by forging the iron that would eventually create the entire iron ship known as the Monitor. When it came to the Monitor's name, John Erickson refused to even consider any other name. He, it must be the Monitor. It must be the Monitor. And they basically let John Erickson run roughshod over them. He was able to continue his design, name it the Monitor, and have those iron plates shipped down the Hudson River to a shipyard in Brooklyn, in which a weird fascination happened to the people of Brooklyn, where it's like, what? What is this? As iron bars slowly formed a cockade of a hole of a ship, and they're just like, that's odd. And then the iron plates went on as well. And it was simply a, wow, this thing's going to sink. But in only a few short months, the USS Monitor, which hadn't been paid and slowly financed by Cornelius Bushnell and John Erickson himself to be built for the Union Navy, was put together as the ironworks shipped steel down and the ship was put together by master shipwrights in Brooklyn Naval Yard. But there is a problem. The Navy wanted to use smaller guns than what John Erickson predicted. 
and John Erickson was not having it. He threw a hissy fit over his design of the turret. But eventually John Erickson would lose one of the few arguments that he engaged in with the Navy. And smaller guns were installed in the turret of the monitor. This might be a mistake, but they were smaller and they were more maneuverable for the turret. Also, the master shipwrights never built a ship like this before. So some weird things were discovered, like what happens when you dip a iron-hulled ship into salty water. They had to treat it, they had to shave it, and they had to paint it. The ship was rusting, and they had to battle against the rust. But these minor hiccups weren't really a problem. The Union's industrial capacity was able to produce a brand new innovative ship in record time. And the only issue is on the seal of where the turret was, they installed rope as a waterproofing measure. Even though John Erickson perfectly designed a ball bearing system that could keep the turret sealed and rotated in which it moved smoothly, the master shipwrights who did not know exactly what they were building were concerned about the waterproofing and waterproofed it with rope. The South had a few months head start on the production of their ironclad, but once they had the design down and production started, they ran into issues that the Union simply didn't have. As we've mentioned, the South was primarily agrarian and the Union was primarily mercantile and industrial. This meant that the South didn't really have any major manufacturing uh, tradition and they didn't have very many railroads to go along with it. They did have a line going from Richmond to Norfolk, the ironworks being in Richmond and the actual production of the ship being in Norfolk. But the Teamsters Union had petitioned the Virginian government to not allow one continuous rail line. So that rail line from Norfolk to Richmond had a stop where they had to unload all of the cargo and reload it onto a different train to finish the route. The Treadgar Ironworks produced 733 tons of iron that had to be shipped to Norfolk. Every single ton had to be unloaded off of the train and reloaded onto a different train halfway there. Granted, this was not done by paid labor. This is the Dixie South. This was done by slaves. So you can imagine how much they really did not want to be doing the job they were forced to be doing. This meant that the entire process took ages. They had a head start, yes, but logistical nightmare meant that they didn't really take advantage of it. The production was going along nicely, but the material shipping was not. Keep in mind that there is a war going on, so while all this iron is being transported, these same rail lines are being used to transport troops and supplies. This is making for a giant bottleneck as you have one train continuously shipping hundreds of tons of material back and forth between two cities while other trains are trying to move troops and supplies to the front line up by, you know, Richmond, by D.C., where the Union's pushing, which slowed down the entire war effort as it took much longer than it would have normally. The ship did get... Uh, 
put together though it took a lot longer than it should have you know it was put to sea it didn't sink immediately and the uh, iron plating was finished and the last train car shipped its load out on february 12th of 1862 all in all it had taken about two years to produce everything necessary for their super weapon but it was produced and now it was time to see just how seaworthy this ship was. In terms of armament, it had a lot more cannons than the Monitor. The Monitor had twin cannons, but the uh, Merrimack was designed much more traditionally with broadsides, you know, using the cannons taken from the Norfolk Naval Yard, actually. So it was using the same cannons originally designed for the wooden Merrimack, now for the steel Virginia. It also had a ram. See, the Southerners weren't sure if the cannons would work as well because they weren't sure about the maneuverability. It didn't really have much maneuverability at all. It was kind of, you know, a giant floating iron box that was using an engine designed for a wooden vessel. And as we touched upon last time, that engine didn't really work that well anyways. It had been laying out on the shore for months before John Isherwood fixed it. And then after that, it had been been underwater for months and as you can imagine it it wasn't necessarily the uh, pinnacle of efficiency at this point so that's why they had the ram they figured at all costs if we can't get the cannons to face it at the very least we can run this thing into another ship and take something out that way despite all of its production mishaps all of its logistical nightmares all of its issues with train and iron plate and armor Despite everything I had going against it, the CSS Virginia was completed, and it was seaworthy, and it set out into the Hampton Roads to meet its destiny. It would either destroy the Union stranglehold over southern ports and open up the seas for exports of cotton, or die trying. The Monitor set sail to crowds confused but interested in what was going off into their harbor in New York. This weird, odd iron ship was chugging along to crowds applauding or lamenting how this is just hubris or just in awe of what was up. But the ships of the New York City Harbor didn't fly flags or fire salutes or celebrate a warship sailing off. They just saw an odd iron ship being dragged out into the ocean along with some tugs that were brought along to get it down to Hampton Roads. But here's where issues came in for the Monitor. Although it had a relatively easy production and construction unlike the CSS Virginia, it had a waterline at about a foot above below the ship so the ship was only about a foot above the water and in rough seas or the ocean in general water splashes up and if you remember me mentioning that waterproofing with rope that didn't work so the ship turned to flooding drastically in which the crew had to aggressively bail the ship out and as it continued to flood CO2 started to produce inside the monitor. Uh, The crew of the monitor was suffering horrible CO2 poisoning and were constantly bailing out 
the monitor, and they started to get dumber and dumber. They really were just kind of vibing and losing control of their brains. But after being tugged out of rough seas, they were on their way down to Norfolk, Virginia, in the Hampton Roads, which were the straits in that area of that little part of Virginia where there's all of these forks. It's a little estuary called Hampton Roads, where, although the monitor would be a day late, had a destiny with the other Confederate ironclad. In the early morning of March 8th, Union ships saw a strange sight exiting the Confederate shipyards. See, they were there to blockade the river route into Richmond, but that's when an iron vessel slowly lurched its way out from the straits. They were quite confused, but, you know, there were three frigates, you know, ship of the line, the pride of the fleet in that area and they weren't too concerned you know they had mighty cannons and broadsides and this was only one ship you know what's it gonna do the crew of the merrimack set their sights on the largest ship the uss congress see they were ready to fight and they wanted the biggest prey they could find the congress was a traditional vessel made of wood with sail and some engines added later that didn't really work that well. It was the type of ship you'd see in the pride of the British Navy, you know, fighting at Trafalgar and all these battles you think of when you think of naval warfare in the 18th century. But this was the 19th century and things had changed. As the Merrimack approached, the Congress found its guns were ineffectual and bouncing off. The Merrimack crew was elated to find that their armor worked and they were impervious to anything the Congress could throw at it. So they sailed right up to it. The Congress had no idea what to do. They they just were not prepared for something like this. And the Merrimack just blew it to hell. The Congress sank, and as it was sinking, the Merrimack turned to another ship in the area, the USS Cumberland. The crew of the Cumberland saw the disaster of the Congress, completely confused on how one of the prides of the Navy of the United States was just ripped to shreds. Splinters through, flew through the ship, death all around, as the Congress slowly sank into the estuary of the Hampton Roads. The Cumberland was next. They armed, ready, broadsides loaded preparing for what was going to be an absolute disaster. They knew it, but they stood fast and knew that they had to do everything they can to stop this Confederate tide of iron coming at them. The Merrimack slowly chugged at the Cumberland. Knowing that it was coming, the Cumberland was fitted with a very long artillery rifle. This was a large rifled cannon meant for range and absolute firepower. It was attached to the back of the Cumberland, so the Cumberland focused its rifle and let loose as many shots as possible, denting the Merrimack, but not piercing it. Knowing that it was coming to an end, the Cumberland unloaded as much artillery as they could possibly dump into it. The Merrimack also dumped a broadside into it, and another broadside into it, and another broadside into it, and the Cumberland began to sink, but 
the Cumberland kept on firing. They kept flying the U.S. flag, and they refused to surrender. The Merrimack stopped, asked the crew of the Cumberland, do they wish to surrender? They did not. So, the Merrimack, with its ram fixed, full speed ahead, shoved right into the Cumberland, smashing its ancient Greek iron ram into it as if it was a trireme of old. But there is an issue. I don't know if we've gotten this point across fully yet, but the South was not particularly good on the industrial production of things. In the production of this ram, there was a few issues in its manufacture. And instead of talking about those issues to superiors, a workman at the Treadgar Iron Works decided to just throw a couple of plates on top of the cracks that had formed in its casting. This looked fine. You couldn't tell it was broken, but it was a major defect in the structural integrity of the ram itself. Once it had slammed into a gigantic frigate, this defect was made plain to all. The ram lodged into the waterline of the Cumberland, and it burst with water and sea, flooding the ship and making the ship just plummet into the water. This was an issue for the Merrimack, because they now saw that they're attached to a very large, very heavy sinking ship. But, good thing, uh, their production was uh, a bit less than high quality, because the ram and its defects split from the Cumberland, detaching from the Merrimack, and removing one of the most effective tools that the Merrimack could have had to fight what was coming down the ocean, named the, the Monitor. But... It saved the Merrimack from a watery grave as the Cumberland sank into the ocean. But there is a third ship, the USS Minnesota. And seeing the disasters fighting the Merrimack, the USS Minnesota went, well, they can't sink us if we sink ourselves. So they turned on their steam engines and scuttled themselves straight onto the beach as far as they could, beaching themselves and locking themselves as a wooden artillery battery to attempt to fight off the coming Merrimack. The Merrimack approached the Minnesota ready to fire. The Minnesota fired back, in which Union military up on land saw, well, you know, we aren't ships, and the Minnesota looks like it's about to surrender. Why don't we shoot it as well? Opening up artillery barrage from the land and the USS Minnesota at the Merrimack, forcing the Merrimack to slightly pull back, leaving the Minnesota to live another day, but causing burning wreckage all throughout Hampton Roads and virtually opening up the port for the Confederate States of America. But our friend the Monitor, in the morning of March 9th, just plugged on in to Hampton Roads to see the disaster and burning and its date with destiny. 
next week on the explosive finale to the Battle of the Hampton Roads. We'll see that day with destiny. We'll see who emerges victorious. And we'll see the broad impact that this battle had on the war as a whole. Thanks for tuning in to the Cleocast.